We say our tagline is we invest in software for hard industries. And by hard, we mean legacy, existential, outdated, operationally complex. I think just having a unique thesis going into the investing world is important for anyone. I'm very focused on that thesis in those sort of sectors. Welcome to the Operate Podcast, where we give you a behind-the-scenes look at company building from the perspective of the builders themselves. This is how we operate. Welcome to the Operate Podcast. I'm Kerry Ransom. Today's episode is sponsored by Bank Tech Ventures, the first strategic investment fund designed by the community banking industry for community bank innovation and investment. Bank Tech identifies leading products and technologies for community banks and works with the founders and management teams to maximize the impact for community banks and their businesses. If you're a bank looking to innovate and invest in the future or a founder who wants to work with community banks, reach out to Bank Tech Ventures at banktechventures.com. My guest today is Amber Illig, general partner at the council. What started, as, as she tells me, as her desire to do angel investing eventually expanded to a fund a couple of years ago. And we'll talk a lot about that today. The council fund typically invests about 50 to 100K checks into pre-seed startups and then she also has a group called the Council Angels, which has become a consortium of over a hundred others. Prior to that, she has a really interesting history in both startups and established tech companies. She's worked in names you would definitely recognize, companies like Atmos, Cruise, Snap, and even Apple. She started her career in engineering roles at Eli Lilly and Delta Fawcett, two of Indiana's most well-known companies. And she also graduated from my arch rival school, Purdue. But I'm still excited to speak with her today. Amber's really happy to have you here. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for forgiving me for going to Purdue and having me on your podcast. I'm excited. That's okay. Uh, it's, it's fun. I'm, I'm an equal opportunity. You know, there's, there's still things yeah. to be learned from Boilermaker. I'm certain. I appreciate so, that openness. Absolutely. So let's start. 2023 has definitely been a bit of a reset year for venture capital. What's your current view? There's a ton going on, as you mentioned. I think I I think people kind of at different levels of the the chain and in, in venture and startups are feeling it in different ways. I think VC as a VC, we're kind of middlemen, right? So we have LPs on one side and founders on the other. On the founder side, I see a lot of incredible people working on incredible problems, and I think. Because we've had two rough years, it has kind of been one thing after the other in terms of macroeconomic issues. I think the founders that have stuck around for the most part have been really gritty and they've been really committed to what they've wanted to build. Of course, now with the new AI wave, we will see more tourist founders come in and there will be some serious builders in that category. But I think, you know, as an investor, you kind of have to look out and make sure that everybody's doing something if they are building in the AI space, that they are doing it because they're really passionate about it and they really understand it and have a technical advantage versus just doing it because it's easy to raise capital in that yep. particular area. So I think that's the new challenge on the founder side. And then on the other side with LPs, I think LPs have gotten fairly spooked and there's kind of different mm -hmm. levels of them. You know, they're not as close to founders. And so sometimes they don't see or they don't get that same level of excitement and energy around innovation as we get to see every day talking to them. And so I think that makes it even rougher when we have these big macroeconomic events. I think people are experiencing liquidity issues and they're now wondering, should I keep putting my money into venture, especially if it's early stage? Do I want my money locked up for five to seven years just for a, a little bit of a higher return? 
or would I rather have optionality in the next five or seven years? And so I think that's the challenge VCs are going through right now. And I think it's important to think through what sort of LPs are you going to be able to work with in the next five to seven years, or even in the next one to two years? Because honestly, I think this is a cycle that's going to come back the other direction. But exciting news is that there are a lot more emerging manager programs popping up from some of the behemoths on the LP side. So you see a lot of banks and huge, you know, multi-billion dollar or multi-hundred million dollar vehicles being formed or, or coming out of these vehicles for emerging managers. And I think that is because larger institutions have seen these cycles before and they know that they still want to be consistent and invest through this time. So I think everybody has just different fragments of the same information and feeling it in different ways. It's going to be interesting to see how the, the rest of the year plays out. I think not much more is going to happen between now and the end of the year because of the holidays, but I'm hearing from a lot of LPs that they're excited to hit the ground running in Q1. Mm. We'll see if that pans out, but I think also a lot of people have been sitting on capital for a long time and they're under pressure also to find the best opportunities to invest in. That's right. Yeah. And you have that at multiple levels, right? There are some LPs yeah. that still need to allocate. You've got yeah. general partners like you that have committed funds that that need to lean into the investment period as well. And we'll we'll come back to this later because I, I definitely want to talk about emerging managers. There's just so much evidence that that's where Alpha has been in this business for decades. And yet so little of the capital goes there, which somewhat tells me that venture's not a scale business. And so yeah. I, I think there's this really interesting conflict that exists there. Yeah, totally agree. I think I've seen a lot of times, you know, emerging managers, people are afraid to invest in a first-time fund because they think it's more risky, but ultimately we're making a lot less money on management fees. And so we're just getting off the ground. Our whole reputation is on the line for the rest of our career. It really shouldn't be in this business unless you really want to spend the rest of your That's career right. on it because it's a multi-decade business. And so if you think about it, an emerging manager launching their first fund has the most on the line out of anybody. And then once you get to the point where, you know, you build a huge brand and you have a ton of AUM, you're making so much money that you don't need to care about your carry check coming someday. And so I think, like you said, it's very counterintuitive that mm -hmm. a lot of LPs aren't aware of that opportunity with emerging managers and how lucrative that can be. And there's now even data to support that first-time funds outperform. That's right. And I would even say beyond the the reputation and, and putting it on the line, I think a lot of managers have a point of view that over yeah. time, it all seems to sort of become this herd mentality or conformist where a lot of times you go, I should start a fund because I have this unique insight right. or view. It's it's more entrepreneurial, kind of like a founder themselves. Totally. Yeah. And you can drift away from whatever that special sauce was over time, as you mentioned. So I live in fear of that because I came from the operating world and mm -hmm. had a lot of awesome experiences that led me to my thesis. And now people that I worked with know that I'm doing this. And when they spin out and start companies, I get to hear from them first. And so I'm constantly thinking about how do I design a strategy where I still have eyes and ears on the ground and I can stay relevant versus just rely on my own static network. So we can talk about it later, but that's how our angel community comes into play quite a bit. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Well, you mentioned tourist founders, which we both have, have met a lot, especially during those last few years where money was a plenty and we've seen that happen in cycles. I feel like given how you're going about things, you you are less likely to find those, though. I mean, you talk about at the council how you invest in founders who are reshaping outdated industries or hard industries. I love it. You know, this idea of, of reshaping and, and creating a better world is a is a really interesting point of view and probably gets founders who 
that's their their mission. Like they have to see this change happen in the world and and they're probably more committed. Is, is that true? Is that is that a fair assessment? Definitely. I think these outdated industries are very nuanced. And so to even know that they exist and that they're riddled with issues and know what those issues are to begin with, you know, take the certain type of founder that's likely seen it firsthand and had mm-hmm. to deal with the pain in some way. And that's why they want to go out and fix the problem. And then also they're not glamorous. So, you know, thinking about a consumer app, that's really flashy and exciting and it's going to get millions of people signed up in three months versus an enterprise tool that freight forwarders are going to use to move material across the ocean. To me, that's very sexy, the second one. But to mm-hmm. a lot of people, they'd rather work on the really exciting consumer app that all, the, all their friends are going to be using. So I think that's why you see, you know, founders that really commit to these areas are really all in. They have a unique insight in these areas. And then they also, you know, they're, they're willing to kind of work on something that isn't the popular thing all the time. Well, give me a couple examples of companies you're excited about that are doing this right now. Yeah. So one is Square Dash. So Square Dash is built by um, an ex-veteran. He left the military and started his own roofing company. And he realized several years in that all of his friends who owned roofing companies, including himself, their biggest stressor that kept them up at night was whether or not they're going to be able to pay off their hourly workers on time while staying in business. He saw people with bringing in like $10 million, $10 million in revenue a year that were still on the brink of bankruptcy just because mm. there's so much cash coming in, so much cash coming out. You're constantly waiting on insurance claims to clear. And so he had this unique insight because he had felt the pain himself as a business owner. And he was also very entrepreneurial and business savvy. And so he said, why don't I create a solution to help all of my friends in roofing actually be able to pay their hourly workers on time, be able to get claims processed faster. His solution now is a a part fintech solution, part SaaS tool. So it's a cash flow management tool for roofers and they can kind of look through and understand exactly who they owe, what for, for what job. They can see the status of every claim that they're waiting on to be processed and when they can expect to get that cash back from insurance companies. And then he also offers a cash advance tool. So he's raised a separate debt vehicle to be able to offer that to clients and been really successful at that. So that is like the immediate painkiller. And then the cash flow management tool is kind of like the vitamin that keeps them coming back even more. So I'm really excited about just industries like that, where it's like, you know, if I was a random, you know, person anywhere, maybe working in a tech company in Silicon Valley, that wouldn't be the first idea that I had to start a company there. Yeah. But it's actually a huge opportunity. And roofing is really interesting because it's not cyclical with the rest of the housing market. It's really episodic and you don't know what, when hail and wind and all sorts of other things are going to strike. And so there's kind of a constant need there. And they also help these companies process their claims very quickly and in an automated fashion. So, so yeah, that's one example. And I have many more. Great example. Let's let's you know build on that a little bit. You, you've got this great network of angels, and also I'm guessing a number of them are LPs in your your first fund as well. You know, you, you've got names from huge big name companies. I mean the the Airbnb, Stripe, Uber, Meta, Amazons of the world. What have you found is the biggest value that they would bring, maybe to a Square Dash or to other companies? Yeah. So the the interesting part about them is if you've worked at a company like Airbnb, Slack, Stripe, Uber, et cetera, particularly if you were there in the early years, like pre-IPO, it could have been seed to series B or it could have been series B through growth stage. What I realized working inside of Cruise was that from 200 employees to 2,500 employees, almost every quarter, the company is kind of shedding its skin and becoming a whole new beast to be able to tackle the next challenge. And so all these people have been through that particular experience. And they all have different flavors of it. So we have some people that are experts in finance, 
some people that are experts in products, some that are experts in engineering. And so when a founder reaches out and they're like, hey, this actually happened today. Founder reached out to me and they were like, hey, I looked on your website and I saw you have, we have five platform advisors, but I didn't see anybody focused on engineering. Do you have somebody that you could link me up to? And I looked in our LP. I didn't even have to look, but right off the top of my head, I was like, I have two people. One of them was like a serial entrepreneur at early company, started at Apple and has launched multiple companies of his own as a CTO and CEO. And then another one was at Guild Education for like the first five years that, you know, started as head of, head of engineering and became a CTO. So like two perfect people. What I find about operators is when they join as LPs, they really want to get hands-on. So they're really excited. They're like, please do introduce me to portfolio companies because I want to feel close to the founders. So the founders that leverage it most are like, you know, they're asking me every couple of weeks or every month, like, hey, do you know somebody that's amazing at PR? Do you know somebody that's amazing at marketing? Almost always I have two to three people I can share with them that, and I can even curate like, this person is really good for this. And that person is really good for that. If you want big company style, or if you want startup style, you let me know. Mm -hmm. And so that's been really helpful. Very, very helpful. And and I do agree. I mean, as a, as an operator myself, I don't know any better than just to get involved in the, the ugly, thorny, tough problems to wrestle with. That, that takes me to reshaping venture. Do you think there's a new model that better leverages these folks like you you've pulled together and you know is is there a different structure or different economic arrangement you think that's needed maybe for an emerging manager? Yeah, I mean, I think it it really depends what your special sauce is, right? Cuz some people are not as connected in the operator like some GPs are not as connected sure. in the operator ecosystem, but maybe they're good at something else like, you know, introductions to family offices that operate in the industry that you're serving. That's a whole strategy right there. But I would say if you're an operator launching a VC firm and, you know, that's your special sauce and you understand that world and you have connections to start with in that world. I do think this model of having like an angel community on the side or some community that you're engaging on a, re a repeated basis and sharing deal flow with, that creates, the more engaged they can be, the more that that space becomes kind of their top place to share deal flow. And they really feel kind of bought into the end result. And one thing that we're doing at the council fund is we're actually awarding carry to mm -hmm. any member of our angel community or an LP that if they're, if they're a member of our angel community, they actually earn a slice of carry in the whole fund if they introduce us to a company that we end up investing in. But that goes a long way because people are really motivated and they, they're like, yeah. okay, now I want to learn more about your thesis and make sure I'm sending you really curated deal mm -hmm. folks. I want to get a little slice of carry on the fund, whether or not I'm an LP, like adding on a little more will help. So that's cool. So it's kind of a little bit venture partner light. Yeah, but you can leverage a much larger group. Yeah, sometimes when you sure. do a venture partner, it's like one person and yes, that person has to sure. be, you know, very specifically related to what you're looking for. Um, yep. But me, you know, I'm looking for eyes and ears on the ground at a lot of different places. And so that allows me to leverage it in a different way. Absolutely. That Let's go back to the beginning. I talked about all the different things that you did up to starting the council. Give me the inception. How did, how did you ultimately decide how, how am I going to go do this? Why am I going to go do this full time? Yeah. So I, I've always been interested in investing ever since moving out to the Bay Area. As you know, I grew up in the Midwest, moved mm -hmm. out here about nine years ago for my job with Apple. And that was really the moment that my eyes started to open up to what venture capital was and what a venture backed startup looked like. I went from thinking I had my dream job at Apple to all of a sudden meeting entrepreneurs and startup employees mm -hmm. and saying, wait, 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 how can I get closer to that? That's really exciting. And I think that's why throughout my career, you'll see, even as an operator, I was going to smaller and smaller companies. Mm -hmm. And so 
the unlock for me was basically I went through, you know, a tiny liquidity event at Snap, not anything life changing, but I finally felt like I had enough money to afford starting to angel invest. And so I was very surgical about it. I said, I want to invite, I want to invest in 30 companies over three years to see A, am I any good at it? And B, would I want to do this full time? But my first hurdle was I actually don't have a network in this world. I don't know many founders unless they're like my, my friend of a friend. And I know a couple of coworkers that have leave to start companies and then that's it. So I started asking around and found a few other women who were also operators at top companies like Square and Slack and Airbnb and Lyft. And so we all came together and we had a really interesting mix of experience. Some of us had just written our first few angel checks. We had a couple members in the group that, you know, one had written probably 50 to 100 angel checks by that point was early Salesforce and PayPal. And then another one was the chief of staff at first round. So saw a lot of deal flow, even though she wasn't in a decision making seat and knew what that process looked like. And so we were able to really play off of each other's strengths both functionally being at different companies with different eyes and ears on the ground, and then also just understanding and demystifying angel investing for each other. So everybody at every level got a lot out of the community. Mm. And so basically the whole time I was angel investing, I had become a co-lead of that group fairly early on and ended up growing it to like 50 or 80 members with no website, no marketing, just because people kept telling their friends about it and be like, hey, can so-and-so join? Can you, can I invite them to the next meeting? And then that person would be like, how can I please, you know, be a part of this? And so I think it just showed the vacuum that was there for operators and how entrenched operators are. So yeah, that just kept growing. And then by the end of three years, it was like that community had become a really unique source of deal flow for me personally and for the whole group. And then I had a track record that had developed as well. So at that point, I had invested in those 30 startups. I had invested ahead of Y Combinator and SoftBank and Lightspeed and Lux Capital and a bunch of others. And then also just co-invested with a lot of, a lot of great firms. So it wasn't like I had two decades worth of data as a GP, but I was able to look back and see some leading indicators that made me feel if I wanted to do this full time, I would feel comfortable raising outside capital and investing up other people's dollars. And then the other thing that I was trying to test out was would I want to do this full time? And what I realized in kind of running this angel community and angel investing as a side hobby is that I was spending a ridiculous amount of time on it, like by choice, spending all of my nights and weekends looking at pitch decks, nurturing our angel community, thinking about what the next evolution is going to look like, supporting portfolio founders, jumping on calls with them all the time to make sure every single one has a great experience working with me. And so that was an indicator to me. And I, I wasn't hating it. I wasn't like, oh my gosh, this is so much work. Why am I doing this to myself? It was like, how can I do more of this and free up more of my time to do it? And so that was really the impetus for me launching the council fund. Um, Cause at that point it was like, we had the unique deal flow. We had the track record, the willingness to do it. And I'd been able to make it into the, the deals that I had wanted to get into. I'll stop there, but it was, it was a long story, but, but yeah, that's kind of how the, the council came to be. It's awesome. Well, and and I think I mean, there's so much to take away from that, which is you're, you're doing it, you're helping others, you're, you're just building and, those things do just, they start to compound over time, which you're, you're obviously seeing the early indications of. So look ahead 10 years. Where, where do you hope you are 10 years from now? I mean, obviously I'm sure you want to keep doing it, but do you have a, a better or clearer vision now of what you think this should look like in 10 years? Yes, I a clear vision with openness to change and learnings along the way. So if possible in 10 years, I, I listen to this podcast and like, what in the world was I thinking? But, <laughs> um, okay. but yeah, but today looking forward, what I really am most passionate about and feel where I, that I can, you know, offer the most to founders is at pre-seed stage. So I always kind of want that to be my anchor because mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is about talent recognition and then support at that stage. And I think 
I'm uniquely positioned for that, having been a people manager at tech companies and uh, also seeing a lot of portfolio companies and the sort of things I want to look for in founders, but then also having a network that can support those founders and help them get to seed stage and series A. And then I want to be able to pass founders off at, at series A to folks that are really great at growth stage investing, because that's something I don't know much about. I know enough to know what's going to be interesting to them and what's going to potentially get funded, but that's a whole different ballgame. And so right now I kind of want to be like the multi-stage firm for early stage, but I want, I really want to focus on getting in really early and backing those founders as they're getting off the ground. Because I've noticed that like, for instance, there are, there's a lot of glamour given to second time founders and third time founders, but, and I think they deserve that because they're kind of like a Swiss army knife of operators. But there's usually 10, 20, 30, even 100 people around them that were instrumental in getting that company off the ground. And so I want to find those people and back them as early as possible as they're launching their first official startup, because I know they've been in a startup before and they are entrepreneurial by nature. So I I know that that's going to continue to be my anchor. And then it becomes, how can I support them to make those next two jumps from pre-seed to seed and then seed to series A? less painful for them because I've seen situations where companies have incredible traction, huge market, wonderful founders that can sell customers right and left and still spend three months in the market fundraising at various stages. And I think having a multi-stage VC on your cap table is really advantageous, both at early stage and at growth stage and post series A. So I really, for now, I want to own that early stage and focus on it, but get in really early to start those relationships. So you've worked and I'm somewhat similar to this. So I, I'm probably, you know, personally uh, interested in your view. You've worked across a number of different companies and a lot of even different industries and and business models. How how do you feel like that served you now in this role as an investor? Yeah, well, number one, it did help me craft my thesis quite a bit. So first half of my career was focused on medical devices and consumer electronics. So medical devices for people with diabetes at Eli Lilly, I was working on a reusable electronic medical device for insulin delivery. And then at Apple was working at the iPhone on the iPhone and manufacturing. And then same thing at Snap helped do the first or the last few development builds for spectacles before it launched. So throughout those roles, I was really interfacing with manufacturing logistics and supply mm-hmm. chain quite a bit. I was spending about 90 days a year in China on factory floors organizing development builds and reporting back uh, on how those were going. And and so that really opened up my eyes that like every time I'm working with our partners outside of this core company that I'm working at, we're like moving 20 years behind in terms of the tools that we're mm-hmm. using. We're using, you know, spreadsheets, emails, and phone calls to get everything done. And so that was eye-opening. And then second half of my career, I interfaced with transportation at cruise and kind of city garage ops, regulation, things like that that were very operationally com- complex. And then at Atmos was focused on construction tech. So interfaced with a lot of builders, saw, you know, how quotes come together and all the different errors that occur throughout a build and all sorts of stuff. And just realized a lot of these things could be solved through better technology and just made, you know, simpler for the folks that are running these businesses that actually don't want to be behind their computer all day dealing with these little issues. That really helped form my thesis as an investor. And that's why I kind of anchored on this thesis around legacy industries. And we, we say our tagline is, we, we invest in software for hard industries. And by hard, we mean legacy, existential, outdated, you know, usually operationally complex. But that I think just having a unique thesis going into the investing world is important for anyone. And some people are geographically focused. Some people are thesis focused. I'm very focused on that thesis and, and those mm-hmm. sort of sectors. So, and then in terms of how it helped me beyond thesis development, I think in general, like I, 
one other thing throughout my career was that I started in Fortune 500 companies and then moved my way all the way down to seed stage. So I did it in reverse order. Mm -hmm. But at every single company, other than maybe the Fortune 500s, I was always seeing the company go through a huge step change. So, you know, at most it was seed to Series A. And then at Cruise, it was going from 400 employees to 2,500 employees. By the time I left, you know, it, it was multi tens of billions of dollars in worth. And it was very, you know, worth a lot when I joined, but still I had grown quite a bit. And then at Snap, I joined pre-IPO, left after the IPO. And so these experiences kind of showed me how companies have to change on the inside and what's the right time to hire certain roles, what is mm -hmm. too early to hire certain roles. And so particularly at pre-seed and seed stage, I see founders get a lot of different advice from different places. I'm like, hey, you need a head of HR, you need a, a COO right now. And they, and so being able to really get into the details on like, do they need that? Can they afford that? You know, what are the different ways that this could actually backfire on you doing this too early? And then when is the time you absolutely need that that person or things are going to start falling through the cracks? So, so yeah, I think that's where I've been most helpful, just kind of leveraging my operating experience. And then also just having some empathy. You know, I I don't get freaked out when founders call me and they're like, hey, the sky is falling. I don't know what to do about mm -hmm. this problem because I've had that happen at work a million times and it, it just doesn't bother me anymore. And I know that there's always a way around any obstacle if you're creative and and can think with a level head. So I like to be a thought partner and just like listener in those situations versus somebody that's applying more pressure because they don't understand what's going on and, and I'm fearful. Yep. Yeah, that's so good. Let's talk a bit more about you. Curious, as you think back across all those and even where you are now, what do you feel like the biggest risk you've taken in your career thus far has been? So honestly, the biggest risk I think I've taken, and there's different ways to define risks, but I'll, I'll go with the, the earliest one that I felt was the craziest at the time, which is I was working at Eli Lilly and early in my career, I had always kind of, I had grown up in the Midwest, had been in Indiana for over 10 years at that point, And I kind of always wanted to get out and live in a different place, but didn't really quite know what to do. And so I was focused on, you know, I'm just going to stay here and, and grind it out. And then someday I'll go get my MBA in Europe and have a different experience. So that was kind of my path. And I was like, I'm going to grow as much as I can at Lily. In the meantime, I had incredible mentors there. I was so set up for success. And then out of the blue, I heard from a recruiter on LinkedIn of all things, this was like 2014 or something. And so in, in Indiana in 2014, that wasn't common to just hear from a recruiter on LinkedIn. I I hadn't checked it in like two months. I, I checked my my DMs and saw that a recruiter from Apple had reached out and was like, this has to be spam, but they can't steal my identity with a resume. So I'll just send it over. And it ended up being legit. And so, and I, at first I didn't know why Apple was contacting me because I was working in pharma, but they, it turns out there were a lot of similarities between that reusable medical device and the iPhone in terms of how it's manufactured, where it's manufactured, both are reusable and electronic. And so I ended up, you know, having the opportunity to move out to San Francisco. I didn't know one person in the state of California, not even kidding. I had never been here before. I came out for like 24 days for my interview and it was like nighttime. I drove back and forth across the Golden Gate Bridge. I was like, this seems cool. I think I could move to San Francisco. And so I got the job and I took it. And I think to me, that was the biggest risk just because at the time I didn't know where, what would come of it. And I didn't know if I was going to have any support and Obviously, it was a great opportunity, but in my mind, I was like, what What would be the biggest regret? Not taking it and wishing that I had or taking it and having it fail and wishing that I hadn't. And I was like, even if I fail, I don't think I'm going to wish that I didn't do this. So that moved me out to the Bay Area and honestly changed the trajectory of my career. So I think just being willing. And the reason I think it is a big risk, I didn't feel that at the time, but I've had so many friends be like, why would you do that? Why are you leaving Indiana? Like, why? 
it's so expensive to live in California and, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. You have this great career right here at Eli Lilly. And of course, Apple's amazing too, but like, yeah. And then I've also had friends where they have the opportunity to take a big job like that and they just didn't. And that's totally fine to each their own. And people have different priorities at different points in life. I just happened to be at a point in mind where I could make that decision. I didn't have many strings attached. And so I'm really happy I did that because it really did pay off. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, that's a great story. I, I often find super successful people like you, not always, but in many cases, they have rituals or things that they're really disciplined about. I mean, you talked about when you decided to do angel investing, it was fairly regimented in how you wanted to to delve into it. How how do you think about any of those kinds of things for you and yeah. you know, what, what they do for you? Yeah. So I think, um, for instance, with angel investing, I, I really don't jump into anything until I know enough about it that I really want to go deep. And then I fully commit. Like once I realize, okay, this is something I want to spend a lot of time on, I go all in. And so mm -hmm. for me, that's why it was like, I'm not going to just casually invest in a couple of deals or join a couple of syndicates because this could actually be a, I'm so interested that this could actually be a future career opportunity mm -hmm. for me. So I really need to explore every single angle. So I actually started out with syndicates as a way to just get my feet wet and see how, to, how does a bigger syndicate leader organize a deal memo? What are the things they're looking for? And which ones do I gravitate toward the, out of that pool? But then very quickly, I was like, you know what? I've now reached a level where I can't really learn much more from being in this one particular syndicate because I'm not sourcing my own deals and I'm not doing my own due diligence. I'm relying on somebody else to do that. And by the way, I think this is a great thing for many people to be investing through syndicates just because a lot of people don't have the time or interest in going mm -hmm. further. But I did. I was like, you know, now I need to build out the next phase, learn the next thing. And so it was like, how do I source my own deals? And that's how the Council Angels was born. How do I diligence my own deals? That naturally came about through the Council Angels. And so I think that that just like being not not saying yes to everything, but when you do say yes to something, going all in and then seeing what you learn. And then of course, like if I had hated it, I hope I would have had the awareness to say, hey, stop spending time on this and like scale back. But I ended up loving it. And then the other thing, just like little routines. I don't, I don't know if you wanted to get into personal stuff, but I think throughout the pandemic, I, you know, it was such a crazy time with so much going on. I was working my full-time job at Cruise, running this angel community, and there's just a ton going on in the world as well. So like, you know, a lot was on my mind. But just having like a little routine in the morning to just kick off my day helped me kind of center my mind. So I I would for I mean a couple of years actually, I would like always make a hot breakfast for myself. And then like a matcha, like made mm -hmm. from scratch. And that just gave me some time to literally just clear my head because otherwise it's like, you're just going to be jumping into things all day and like back, back to back. And so that was kind of like my little time for myself. So, and of course I did other sporadic things like getting together with friends here and there and stuff, but just having something consistent that was for me was really nice. Mm -hmm. so thank you for sharing. That's great. I mean, I think those are the the things that we all need to to ponder because yeah, it's, it's so easy. I, I, get into my seat when I'm in town like this and I know it could be 12 hours. Yeah. 12 yeah. hours before I get out of my chair and I go, what just happened? I but, know. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back. You you talked a little bit earlier about, you know, you made these investments, you, you invested ahead of, you know, YC and some other very well-known firms and how we take those indicators of success, because the the one challenge that a lot of people have with, angel or pre-seed is how long does it really take to know if you're any good at this or not? And 
I, I mean, I do it too. I love being in at the very, very beginning of a new idea. And yet there are times where I ponder and go, I'm still not sure if I'm good at this. You know, particularly now you look at the, it, it could have been easy to think you were good in 2020 and 2021. And now a lot of those companies may have disappeared or the cap tables are, are a mess. As you look ahead, like, how do you think and think about measuring your, your capability? And then secondly, do you think you have to keep reevaluating? Like what signals or, or are there other things you need to, to look at? Yeah. So it's a great question. I think as a GP, especially with your first time fund or as an angel investor that's just getting started, I think you have to be comfortable with some level of ambiguity. I know a couple, I know several people that have spent, they've tried to move into VC and they've ended up hating it because it's like, you don't have a KPI yeah. that you can measure every single week, exactly. every single month, every single quarter to know, yes, I'm on track and meeting all my goals exactly. this year. And so it's a very, very long cycle to really understand how you're doing. And so I really like to lean into those leading, leading indicators. So to me, who I'm co-investing with is not that great of a signal because that could just mean that I'm finding out about any hot deal. And that means I have access, yes, but it doesn't mean that I'm using my own, that I, I have some special ability to find a deal on my own. You know, why? I just feel like that's not real investing. It's, it's following somebody else's lead. And so I shouldn't say it isn't real investing. That can work for some people. But for yeah. me, it's like, I really I want to know saying. that I'm delivering my own alpha here. And so for me, what I get excited about is if I've gotten into one of those deals much earlier than those bigger firms and and actually seen meaningful markups that I don't feel are inflated. So even in 2021, the top two companies, I have four companies that are basically driving like a 6.8 TVPI on our angel portfolio right now. And it's all, and two of those companies, I'm trying to remember what I was saying about these, but oh yeah. So it's, all of them are are doing fine right now, but two of them have just continued to do better and better. And they never had a round, even in 2021, that felt like out of control. Mm -hmm. And I really kind of avoided a lot of the hype areas that you tend to see the really inflated valuations. And I've actually gotten more skeptical if I see like a big VC is on board. I'm so happy to see them on board. That's a huge, like, that's a pat on the founder's back for sure. And the company's back for sure. But I always want to like make sure that I'm taking the deal seriously and I'm not getting distracted by their name being there. So it's almost like I want to do a little more diligence doesn't mean more time, but definitely more diligence to make sure I'm being thorough if I'm looking at a deal like that and that it's worth the premium um, that you're paying. So anyways, I really look for that that indicator of like, where am I getting in ahead of top firms that have way more resources than me and by how much? And then, yeah. And then the other thing I look for is like feedback from founders, which is anecdotal. It's not the same as getting like a massive data set with numbers on it, but but getting feedback from founders that is natural and that I'm not necessarily asking for. Like one of our founders the other day, well, two of them just, I introduced them to two of my LPs and one of them ended up getting a 500K check from one and the other one just got a soft commitment for 2 million for their Series A um, as a follow-on investment. And so so that those sort of things hap- like happen and I feel like I'm doing the right thing because I'm making introductions that are helping our founders. And then one of those founders was like, I can't wait until you're leading you know, Series A someday. And I don't know if I'll ever be leading Series A because I'm so obsessed with pre-seed and I see myself more as a follow-on investor, investor there, but it was nice to hear that. He was like, I wish that you could be joining our board. And so, yeah, those little things, those are signals that like I'm creating the right reputation along the way, which will be long lasting as I keep building this firm. Yeah. Those, those um, are yeah, great, great insights for others to to draw from. The one, the one thing I'll say to totally corroborate that too, is I, I think 
when you hear those things from founders, it's great because you don't have to, right? Like you, you, they don't have to say anything. And that's, that's probably more the, the norm because they don't, they don't really generally have an incentive to talk out of school about people that just not say much, but to get that proactive feedback like you are, that's, that's huge. So that, yeah. any, anything you've thought about in how to take, uh, you know, have somebody else to keep you honest or, you know, kind of like what any, anything you, you've thought about as a way to just play that counterbalance to you on that. Yes. I love that question because it's so hard as a solo GP. I think you have to kind of construct or manufacture your own like team or your own management team. And so what I've done is created like a group of about five to six solo GPs that are in the same situation as me. And we get together every one to two months and we talk about how things are going. We share like candidly how our fundraiser is going, who's, you know, who's doing what and what are our biggest challenges. And that's a good way to also look in the mirror and say like, hey, am I like standing up against my peers? Like, you know, how am I doing? You know, and kind of benchmark yourself with people that you actually selected because you think they're top GPs. Mm -hmm. And if you had the capital, you'd be investing in them as well. And then I also like to touch base with my LPs um, just casually, like, you know, every so often, and especially the ones that really know venture very well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just ask their advice. Hey, what did you think of my investor update the other day? How are you feeling about the portfolio? You know, just just seeing what's what's working, what's not working, and getting an outsider's perspective is really helpful. And then recently, I was accepted into the Recast Accelerate program, where they selected like 36 female-led funds. It's run by LPs, and there was like a selection committee of six LPs, which was awesome. And that community has been awesome, too, for more like benchmarking against each other. And not to be competitive, but just to see like, how are we all performing like on all these different factors and and what does success look like? And it's nice to actually have it be run by folks that have been in institutional LP seats before, and they know what success looks like and can kind of tell us where we can. So, yeah. That's great. Well, unfortunately, we're running up against time. It's been super fun. Last questions. First, what are you most excited about over the next year as you think about what's ahead for the council or just, you know, near term? Yeah. So right now I am wrapping up fund one. So actually my final close is on October 31st. So I've already hit the minimum viable fund size and now just keeping it open for a few weeks to get people that are currently in the pipeline through and bring on strategic folks before it closes. And so that's really exciting. I'm doing my first LP summit ever in November and that's exciting exciting because I get to get founders and LPs and prospective LPs all together in one space. So that's going to be a big moment for me because, you know, a lot of times you're just working on your own with a couple other team members and then to actually physically see the whole everybody that's involved in bringing this to life in one space will be really cool. And then in the new year, I'm I'm really excited that, you know, once I wrap up the fundraise later this month for fund one, I actually have the mental space and, and capacity to start thinking a little bit more about fund two. So I have ideas in my head about where I want to head with that and definitely thinking bigger and have learned a ton along the way on fund one. And so I'm just excited to distill all those learnings into a strategy and hit the ground running next year. So yeah, I'm excited. That's awesome. Last question. What would you say is the biggest area of personal growth you want to invest in yourself over the next year? Man, it's such a good question. I So through the recast program, they gave us access to, mm. to six different sessions with professional coaches. And I thought through the different areas I need the most help on. And I think one big one is 
just confidence and like thinking bigger and coming from an abundance mentality versus mm. a scarcity mentality. Like for instance, when I raised fund one, I was coming in as an operator and I saw other operators launching like five to $10 million funds. So I, I targeted a small fund size. And I also looked at my angel community that I would be going to first as potential LPs. And I was like, okay, I kind of know their check sizes and I know what I could raise from like my community and their community and their community. But, and so I started with what do I think that I can raise and how do I design a strategy around that? And now I think moving forward, it's more like, what do I know that I can strategically deploy? And and then now, how am I going to figure out how to make that happen? Mm -hmm. And so it's definitely scary territory because it's like, you have to think a lot bigger and really trust yourself that you're ready to pull that off. And But I do feel like I, my confidence has grown a ton in the past two years as a fund manager. I feel ready for that, but also scared at the same time. So that's something I'm you know, I'm going in knowing that we're in a crazy environment and continuing to grow this firm is it's a big commitment in this environment, but I am just excited for the challenge. So, yeah. And I think mindset is a big part of it. Hmm. So true. So true. Well, Amber, thank you. This has been, as I expected, a, a really fun conversation. And I, I'm so appreciative of being vulnerable and authentic as you are and, and so much value that I think others, founders and and other investors like us will will take away. So thank you for sharing that. And I'm excited that we're going to probably find something to collaborate on because I like yeah. the, the hard stuff and that your founders are working on as well. And yeah. so uh, look forward to figuring out what our first one will be. Yeah, same here. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you so much for having me, Carrie. This is awesome. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Operate Podcast. If you like this conversation, as a favor to me, you can rate us, review us, or subscribe, or tell your friends. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Operate Podcast. Until next week, get out there and operate.